Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. Today, I'm absolutely honored and delighted to have with me Professor Walter Longo. Professor Walter Longo is an Italian-American, and he is Professor of Gerontology and Biological Sciences at the University of Southern California. He's also the director of the USC Longevity Institute and author of the extremely popular book, The Longevity Diet, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. In essence, the book describes a diet that people should follow on a daily basis, um, plus interspersed as required. We'll talk about those requirements as we go along. Um, a period of fasting, but not a water fast. Dr. Longo has actually produced um, a series of nutritional supplements to actually help you over that period. And we'll talk about why those two things together are so important. My first question, Dr. Longo, first of all, Welcome. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with me. Um, my first question is um, regarding the book. This book is based on an enormous amount of research, over 20 years of research. What was the data that you were waiting to get before you actually put this book out to the public? Uh, the um, I think it, it, it it came time to uh, publish it when um, we finished the clinical trials, some of the initial clinical trials. And, and the whole thing started with uh, simple organisms. But uh, uh, once we finished the trials, uh, then I thought it was time to let everybody know and take advantage of it. Uh, understanding that, of course, you can always do larger trials, uh, more diseases. And, 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 um, and so we're doing that. But... Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the two clinical trials, the one on multiple sclerosis and the one on healthy people, I think really put a, wrapped it up, uh, and, and I felt uh, I had to get it out there. Also, we had, um, just published, um, an epidemiological study, uh, using the CDC enhanced database. This is the large, uh, uh, center for disease control, uh, database on, on protein intake and, and longevity and, and disease. So, um, and I, I was collaborating with, uh, with the Harvard group uh, on the uh, nurses and doctor and physician study. And I also was about to publish uh, um, on that group of 120,000 people. So, yeah, I felt that it was no longer just uh, a story about uh, mice and, and science. It was, uh, it was a story uh, about uh, results, uh, and, you know, that had a, a very deep foundation in science and, and research, but uh, um, it, it was uh, it was close to uh, you know not a demonstration because obviously it takes years, but uh, certainly enough for people to to start considering it and doctors start considering it. Yeah, wonderful. Um, let's go through the diet a little bit. Um, one one of the things that I love about your research, um, and you you start your book by describing this, is, is this idea of looking at data, not only the data that you produce, but other data and other sources of information. You call these the five pillars. Could you just very briefly describe what those five pillars are on which you base your, your, your deductions? Yes. Yeah, so the five pillars are really what I feel... I mean, I always say, you know, when, when somebody goes to court and, and if there is a, 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 a somebody's on trial, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to just say, well, you know, the person was around the, the crime scene, it must be him or her, right? I mean, there's DNA, there's all kinds of uh, pieces of evidence that are used to determine whether somebody's in fact guilty or not. And, and I was always shocked uh, almost every book I read, it was like a one pillar. So it's like I have the you know circumstantial evidence, and that must be it. You know? um, so, for example, I followed a bunch of patients in, in the years in the clinic. I observed this. This must be it. It must work, right? And and that's a very flawed uh, way of doing it. Uh, why? Well, because you know there is just uh, the right way of doing it. And so the pillars, for example randomized clinical trial rather than, oh, I observed a bunch of patients that came to me because if you just observe, it's very easy to remember what works and not remember what didn't work, right? It is, you always remember, and this is a typical flaw of, like, say, the local doctor that 
the things that, uh, you know, um, these observations, of course, observations are, are great, they're very important, but uh, they're not the story. So the pillars, randomized clinical trials, studies of centenarians, uh, you know, you, we can do all the science in the world that we want to do, uh, but then if you say, let's say, a low-protein diet seems to be great for you, whether it's a mouse or, or a clinical trial, um, but then you go around the world and nobody has a low-protein diet, you know, that would be bad. Right? Well, it turns out that almost every population that has got record longevity has a low-protein diet. So it's good news, right? The, so you, you take the clinical trials, you take the basic research, that's another uh, pillar, you know, how can you make a mouse live longer, right? So that's a pillar. And then you go to the centenarians and say, do they use this? That's a third pillar. And the fourth pillar is epidemiological studies, right? So if you say a low-protein diet is good for you, um, and you look at the data, big databases, whether it's Harvard or, or, or CDC, um, well, if you see the opposite, it, 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 epidemiological data is always tricky, right? Because it depends what group you select. But certainly in general, you should see something very supportive of your hypothesis. And in this case, again, uh, the low-protein diet, for example, seems to be doing uh, uh, the best. But the epidemiological studies, for example, brought us to show, um, to understand that for all people, a low-protein diet is not so good. You know? And that was very important. It's, without that pillar, I would never have figured it out. I mean, it, it was not something that I was thinking based on the mice or based on the clinical trial. It would have been impossible. It was epidemiology that said, I know low-protein is good up to age 65, 70, but the 90-year-olds or 80-year-olds don't seem to be doing good at all if they say, I have a very low-protein diet. So, so there was a, a big warning for us, and, um, and it was a great one. And um, the last pillar is something that I call complex uh, systems. Um, so I like the idea of also making something as simple as possible and think about a car right, and, or, or a plane and, and use that sort of to, to, um, to go back to something that we build we know exactly why it gets damaged, it gets old. And so we can use that to, uh, to make some conclusions about, for example, wear and tear in the human body, right? At some point, we start behaving like a car. And so, for example, um, if, you, um, if you run all the time, right? And the data may be a little bit confusing, but then you go to the complex system and say, well, what happens if you, if you drive a car all the time? Uh, is that a good thing? You know, if you if you put a you know thirty thousand miles on a car per year, is that good? No, you know we all know that. I mean, nobody will want to buy a car that's got put thirty thousand miles a year on it, right? And that's the same thing for the human body. I think that you know you have to say unless the data, the the other four pillars go completely against this, you have to say, well, most complex systems will be damaged by this behavior. Uh, and chances are the human body is also gonna gonna get the same. Yeah, makes absolute perfect sense. I I love it. I think it's it's a it's a it's a rare approach and uh, and a and a really solid one. And it makes your data all the more impressive. So let's go through this longevity diet. This is a diet that you recommend based on all of these um, pillars and your own studies um, that people should follow on a regular basis. So could you just briefly go outline what that is? Because we, we know there's so much contention out there these days about high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat, high protein, low protein. So maybe we can just clear that out and, and lay your research and say exactly what's what. Yeah. And, and again, um, I think that uh, you're not going to find uh, almost anybody, whether they use, uh, you know, four pillars or six pillars they use mine or theirs. And it's not about my pillars. It's really about, you know, going through it and say, you know, if I, if I'm out there advertising a low carb diet, as many, many scientists are doing, uh, they don't care. I say, fine, you want to, let's go, let's go through it. You know, let's go through the data. And centenarians don't have low carb diet. They're, they all have high carb diet. Um, you know, the clinical studies do, do not support this. The epidemiological studies do not support this. The mouse studies, you know, the, the, the high-carb diet is the diet that where the mice uh, live the longest time, right? So, you know, it's, I'm surprised that um, people are not demanding 
from these experts, this kind of much wider, much more sophisticated and, um, you know, um, I think wide approach, right? They're not, nobody's demanding this. So anybody who gets on TV or writes a book, if it sounds good, then people buy it and people do it because they're all looking at the short-term approach. But anyways, so what is the longevity diet? So, so after you put it all together and you look for common denominators, um, then you come up with a pretty good, solid idea that it should be uh, low protein up to age 65. Then the protein should increase um, and the patient should probably try not to lose too much weight after age 65. You know, people gain lots of weight up to a certain age and start losing it. And both things are bad, right? So gaining lots of weight and then losing it, both of these things be, seem to be bad. And then high nourishment. You know, this is very important. Lots of people, you know, they become vegan, vegetarian, and they think, oh, this is great. And they don't realize lots of the times that they're becoming malnourished, right? So they may be protein deficient, right? Now the opposite, right? They go from too much protein, too little protein. They may become B12 deficient, calcium deficient, et cetera, et cetera. So the nourishment uh, is also very important. And, you know, generally, if you look around the world, it's uh, people apply, use, uh, if they live a long time, they're very healthy, they're vegan or pescatarian, right? So they're, they're close to vegan. If you, as, I, as I did interview these people that have record longevity, 110 years old or, or, or so, uh, they tend to say, yes, we used to have eat meat maybe once a week. Uh, some people say once a month. Some people say once every six months. Uh, but let's say, you know, once a week, you, you, you heard it uh, pretty regularly. So uh, say less than once a week seems to be a good idea as far as red meat, except when you look at fish, and this is the criticism, again, again against some of my colleagues that have talked about low protein, and, but no fish, right? It doesn't make any sense because the great majority of the studies are positive on fish. And so people are mixing ideology with science and medicine, right? So if you don't want to eat fish because you have something against it, by all means, don't eat it, you know? But, you know, they shouldn't have been advertised that fish and the rest of the meats are, are in the same categories because they, they haven't been, most of the studies on fish are bad. So pescatarian diet seems to be, a high nourishment pescatarian diet seems to be uh, the ideal one. And then um, there's further simple rules, which is um, which have been fairly common again in, in history in the people that live a long time, is eat within 12 hours a day. So if you start eating at 8 a.m. and by 8 p.m., if you want to eat until 9.30 p.m., start at 9.30 a.m., and then that's it. You know, you don't, uh, don't eat anything. It doesn't matter if you get up at 5. Don't eat anything until 9.30. Um, and that's a good rule uh, for many reasons. Why, uh, you know, what some we don't know and some we do know. For example, uh, with this uh, very bad idea of eating five or six times a day, and what people started doing is eating for longer and longer and longer periods. And so through the work of, of Sachin Panda and others, we know that now people are eating for 15, 16 hours a day. And so they're, they're, you know, somebody might get to uh, 8 p.m. and say, oh, the doctor or the nutritionist told me to eat six times a day or five times. I only ate twice. So I got four more meals to go, right? <laughs> and, and having this silly idea that, you know, somehow that's going to make them healthier, right? So what that's going to do is going to disrupt sleep. Uh, give them excess calories, all all uh, accumulated in the worst time of the day, in the late uh, evening and night. And so this is really been central. Uh, these behaviors has been central in the uh, epidemic of obesity. Now the United States is over is at seventy two percent overweight and obese. It's just unbelievable. If you think about it, it's unbelievable. And Europe is following uh, is following the United States lead. And, yeah, uh, and it seems like UK, nobody's doing anything. The UK anything. is up there, most definitely ahead of most of other Europe, I think, you yeah. know, uh, certainly yeah, with heart disease. Is, yeah. Yeah. So then that leads to the, the meal frequency. So I say, you know, if you're a normal weight, eat three times a day. You might even have a snack if, if that's okay. Um, if you tend to gain weight or overweight or obese, then you got to go to twice a day. That's it, you know. Keep it simple and keep it uh, steady, meaning uh, that's it. Until you lose the weight, 
you only eat twice a day plus a little snack, maybe 100 calories. So you say the idea will be breakfast and lunch, always have breakfast, breakfast and lunch, and then have a small dinner. Most people can't do that. I'm one of them. Uh, so then breakfast and dinner and have 100, 200 calorie, uh, low sugar, uh, um, you know, snack like a salad or, or fruit or, or whatever for, for lunch. And um, so, yeah, so th- that seems to be ideal. I've been using it myself for, for decades. It works. Um, and, and all the people that I followed uh, uh, works on them. It just takes a little bit of discipline. But the, that's the beauty of, of doing things like that. It doesn't have to come with a manual. You, know? you just say, and this is what people used to do all the time. I remember when I was growing up in southern Italy, you know, if you try to eat outside of your meal time, you were told you can't do that. You know? Yeah. The rules. Between meals, that's what I was yeah. always told too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that worked. We were all thin, you know. The, I mean, no, none of us were, were overweight. I mean, maybe one in 20, one in 30. And now this is probably 10 times higher, or certainly multiple fold higher than back 40, 50 years ago. Um, so, you know, clearly this is, uh, this is uh, we're going in the wrong direction. So, yeah, that's uh, another one of the of the recommendation, uh, two meals a day plus a snack if you tend to gain weight. Great. You mentioned protein, um, that low protein for most of the time until you become elderly and then increase the amount of protein. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. What about the carbohydrates? <laughs> um, your recommendation from, from your book is, is that your carbohydrates... 60-30-10, yeah. 60-30-10. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, and now surprisingly, I think I got it right. Uh, the Lancet uh, just published a big study a couple of days ago. I was just about and, to refer to that, yeah. And sure enough, 50%... Uh, uh, but it was interesting because it was 50% if you have uh, uh, 50% of your um, – so it was 83 years lifespan if you had 50% carb diet. And if you had higher, it was 82. It only declined by one, meaning that the ideal diet is somewhere between 50% and, let's say, 70%. I put it at 60. So I think it's right on. And, um, yeah, and then the people that had a low-carb diet they lived uh, three or four years, four years shorter. On average, and uh, yes, yeah, so this is uh, no surprise uh, uh, to me. And, and uh, the data it was already uh, fairly clear. Um, and then you know the carbs. Uh, people also uh, don't re- they, they try to use this one pillar system, and they don't understand also compliance and feasibility. Meaning that it's it's really even if if the low carb diet was a good diet for health, which is not. But it, let's say it was. It's it's irrelevant. You know, people we are programmed to love carbohydrates. This is why kids uh, drink coke. Like you know, that's the best thing they've ever uh, discovered. And this is why you know adults uh, uh, like it and like pasta and rice. And um, you know, because we are programmed, we work, we function on sugar. And uh, no surprise that we seek sugar. And so if you take it away, you always have these rules of no carb, no carb, very low carb. You know, what people are going to do is eventually, and we know this very well, they're going to stop that whatever diet that is, and then they're going to say, forget it. This is not worth living like this. And they go back, you know. And, and that's really something that, that people need to understand much more. It's not just about what you can do for a couple of months. Uh, but it's really what is it gonna, what can you live with? And, and to do that, you have to go back in time and say, what did people live with? You know, and, and what was very so common that somebody couldn't come, you know, this I did for my second book in Italy. See, what was so common that people cannot come and complain? Oh, but what is this? You know, I said, well, this is what we've always eaten. So in my second book, I start from the Etruscans the, the and the Romans. And, you know, guess what? Most just had a mostly vegetarian diet and uh, uh, low protein, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this started thousands of years ago. Uh, it wasn't like that for everybody, but certainly it was for the Romans. And, um, and so I think it's important also to point to that, to make sure people understand this is not like some crazy new idea. This is really, but it's also not just about old ideas, right? It's, it's combining 
the science, the clinical work with the old ideas, right? Say, where do they match, you know? Because there's a lot of stupid old ideas, you know? There are all kinds of things that use people. I like it when they say the paleo diet because we used to eat like that. It's irrelevant, you know? They used to eat so that they could make it to 35, reproducing it out of the way. That was the idea. Yeah, if that's your plan, then, then the paleo diet is a great one. But, uh, you know, um, now we have, we want to be 100 years of age, healthy. And, uh, and now, you know, uh, I, I also think we want to be 70 years of age, young. You know, this is really what I talk about in the book. 100 healthy, 70 young, you know. And how do you do that? And then that's fairly tricky. Um, and, and it takes history, tradition, together with science. Um, and, then, uh, and then I think uh, it, it can work. Yeah, absolutely. What about the outliers, though? I mean, you know, we know, for example, the Inuit, they, they live on a diet primarily of, of seal meat and, and uh, animal fat, or the Maasai who, who live on um, uh, blood and, and milk from, from the cows. Are they intrinsically unhealthy people, or is that some sort of genetic adaptation to their environment so that they don't actually fit into this general scheme? No, no, the Inuit, uh, they live on average 10 years less than the Canadians, right? So certainly no evidence from that that, that that's somehow a good diet, you know? Um, so, yeah, you could say, you know, maybe there is other reason, but they certainly don't live longer. Um, and uh, if you think about the people that live very long lives, uh, they're fairly poor, you know? They, uh, and whether it's, it's uh, Sardinia, there's little towns in the middle of nowhere, or Calabria or Okinawa, I mean, this is now, we're not talking about wealthy people. We're talking about people that were borderline starving for decades and they live very record lives, you know. So the Inuits, why don't, why do they live less than, than the Canadians, you know? Um, well, maybe because they have a, a very low carb uh, or a low carb, high fat, uh, and I assume high protein diet. So, yeah, so that matches very well the, the short lifespan, you know. They, they, and the Canadians don't have record lifespan, right? So the Canadians have a good lifespan, but yeah, and I've never seen it in the record books. So, so, so 10 years less than the Canadians is not good at all. Right. <clears throat> and that, in your opinion, goes primarily back to an excess of protein, correct? So let's talk a little bit about the studies that, that you performed about why protein is a problem, um, meat protein. And is there a difference? You said there was a difference between meat protein and fish protein. Is that on an amino acid level? Is it on a metabolic level? Is it because of the omega-3s? What is the difference? Um, well, the uh, proteins are proteins. Um, and of course, yeah, some plant proteins can have low levels, say, methionine, but not all plant proteins are going to have low level methionine. So these are like generalizations that really cannot be made anymore, you know, because you could take a plant that has got high levels of what everybody thinks is very low in plants, right, uh, as far as amino acids. So, I mean, in general, uh, I think if you took lots of plant uh, proteins, they're pretty good, you know, at providing all the amino acids. Some of them might be lower, some of them are higher, so they're pretty good. And um, uh, so the question is, um, you know, so for example, leucine activates TOR, one of the pro-aging uh, genes that we discovered a long time ago. And, um, and methionine activates IGF-1, you know, uh, something that was discovered by Cynthia Kenyon and others and being key in, in uh, aging. And uh, so, so when you have lots of proteins, essentially you, you're pushing the system into a pro-growth, uh, pro-reproduction mode, right? So this is really pushing, pushing say, uh, as, as if it was time to, to reproduce. And it makes sense, right? That historically, um, that window time was probably short. You know, you may have had a couple of months a year when um, you had lots of proteins, you know, and then... And then that's it, right? For probably for the whole year, um, and so that would probably be the time where you you want to grow if you're a certain age, but grow at the cellular level and and attempt to reproduce. And uh, it turns out though that this process is there's a trade-off when you try to grow and reproduce. You're really um, not paying much attention uh, to protection, repair, replacement. 
And, and it makes sense, right? So if you're about to make, let's say, 15 more of, yours, of, you, of you, right? And back, back you know, 20,000 years ago, you may have had 15 children. Um, you become not that relevant uh, in, in terms of, of, of uh, germline and the DNA being passed on. And so um, it makes sense to put your energy into the 15 children. They're on average probably 20, 25, 20 years younger than you. And they're going to make 15 children. And lots of them are going to die. And, uh, but that's it. You know, it's, it's not good to invest in the older. Uh, also, because there's another argument I made some years ago that there's a potentially um, a, a um, detriment, meaning that, you know, the old can compete with the young. And so maybe there's even a programmed aging, but that's a big uh, discussion that, that, that is a complicated one. But certainly, um, you know, you invest in proteins, activate these genes that promote growth, promote reproduction, and, and are, are, are going to set up the system to be not so worried in terms of investment and repair, replacement, etc. Right. Makes perfect sense. So the longevity diet is in order to keep you healthy. It's preventative. Um, however, you've taken that work one step further and are now looking at fasting in order to actually resolve disease that has occurred. So let's talk about that. Now, fasting is a big topic at the moment. Um, you talked about that 12-hour window. So we all know about the um, the 16-hour um, uh, idea of intermittent fasting. I know that, that you're not a great fan of that. Maybe you could address that a little bit and actually even just start off perhaps by saying why, wh- what, how did you come to the idea of fasting and why is it so relevant? Well, um, again, when uh, anything that we start, um, it starts with evolutionary biology, right? So it starts with, um, you know, what about 3 billion years ago? Um, and uh, what have we learned? What have organisms learned in 3 billion years through evolution? So, you know, back in the early 90s, uh, when I was at UCLA, I first did an experiment on bacteria, and I started them uh, in the laboratory of Steve Clark. And they lived long, right? And 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 there was it. I didn't think much about it. And then I moved to yeast, and I started them with water only, and they lived two or three times longer. And I just came out of the Roy Walford lab, and he was restricting people. Um, so I started thinking calorie restricting people, and the hypothesis is that you know they would live longer. Of course, that never been tested in people. And uh, so I started thinking. Um, although everybody was against me in that sense. But I started saying, I think these effects of dietary restriction come from starvation, come from fasting. You know, it's not, uh, there was never a point where people were calorie restricted. Uh, There was many unavoidable points where all organisms were starving, right? And so I thought, this has got to be it. This is going to be a starvation response. And the restriction you know, eating 20, 30% less calories than normal is probably pushing you a little bit uh, in that direction. And then, um, you know, I realized that it took me a long time, but I realized, well, first of all, we started finding out that chronic calorie restriction did not work. You know, this was uh, the monkey studies by Rafa the Cowboy and Richard Weindruck, and Richard was also in the lab of Roy Walford, um, you know, basically said, it doesn't do much to lifespan. You know, there's probably good and bad, right? And, 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 and this is terrible, right? Because yeah, you're going to be restricted for 30 years. The poor monkeys were restricted for 25 years and, and then live a little longer. You know? And they lived a little bit longer in the Wisconsin study. So, and I started thinking, okay, this is probably because the color restriction never has the most important part of the starvation response, which is the refeeding, right? <laughs> it just occurred to me that it was not occurred to me. I mean, we did many studies and showed that the biggest effects of starvation are not during the starvation. Starvation does a lot of destro- destruction, right? It destroys the inside of the cell. It destroys part of tissues. But it's a very sophisticated destruction, right? It just goes after eliminating, I don't need this, I don't need this. <laughs> and the, the cell and the organism gets rid of a lot of stuff. 
but then you're left with a very lean system, right? And, uh, and you have to rebuild. And that's where lots of the beneficial effects occur. Right? And so anyways, that, this is why uh, starvation comes from the most basic organisms, the prokaryotes, simple eukaryotes. And, and there's something that we have evolved to deal with uh, billions of years ago. And uh, why? Well, because most organisms spend most of the time in, in starvation and a little bit of the time in food, you know? So if you're a bacteria, most of your life is starving. And then you have a couple of hours of glory, right? And, and that's it. And then you go back to starvation. So that's our, that's our history, right? Our history is a, starva- a world of starvation all the time. And, uh, but our history as human being was also probably uh, long periods every year of no food at all or close to no food. And, uh, you know, like we see for the emperor penguins, they can go four or five months with no, with no food at all. This is like a seasonal thing, right? This is standard for them. And, um, yeah, so, so uh, in, the, in those uh, periods, you need to learn how to protect the system. You cannot afford to, uh, to age, but also you learn how to get rid of junk, replace junk, uh, or damage components with new components when when food comes back around now you have it and you can imagine back in the days you know the summer comes around the fruits uh, start uh, growing and now you can probably overeat right and now rebuild right there's there's probably meat around you can you can hunt you can uh, um, eat fruits etc and um, and uh, that allows the system to rebuild and rejuvenate Right, right. So that's feast and famine, as as we all all know. And also, I mean, every culture, religious certainly religious culture, has a has an enforced period of fasting as part of an, of an observance. I mean, that's that's it's not something that's that's new to us. It's definitely a very old and um, um, very well regulated system. Well, I mean, has is. Uh... Is no longer. I mean, you know, most religions haven't fasted really for hundreds of years. You know, right. even but Ramadan is not yeah. really fasting. I mean, most people uh, overeat at night, and there is only like it's just a reversal of the feeding period, uh, with some benefits for some and 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 some detrimental effects for, for others. The Christians haven't fasted in hundreds of years. Uh, now they do like uh, the Friday, you know, eating uh, fish or so. Yeah, it, it, it mostly has disappeared. Um, also, because don't forget that the fasting uh, historically was never presented as a health uh, a benefit. You know, it wasn't like the the, the fasting of the Christians uh, during Lent. It was never presented as a, or known as a as a, oh, this is good for your health. Uh, this was just a religious practice. Uh, that eventually, <laughs> yeah, eventually people uh, abandoned uh, because they didn't see the point and, and the church didn't implement it. So most churches didn't implement it. There is still some that do some of it, but very, very little. Right. So the process that happens when you start to fast and then start to refeed is um, this process of autophagy and um, inside, outside, cleaning up all the cells, everything happening. Um, which studies, um, which diseases have you looked at and implemented your um, diet and um, seen dramatic results with? Yeah, so the, most of the studies uh, thus far have been done in mice, but also we have multiple clinical trials and many clinical trials. I think we have over 25 trials now ongoing or about to start. And um, so cancer is, is one of the ones that we have more trials on. Uh, I think uh, there's, before there were finished clinical trials and another six or seven ongoing. Um, all the results are positive uh, or very positive thus far. Of course, in mice, works great. Now, this is something very well established. You know, you can cure a mouse with a combination of... You cannot cure a mouse. And this is also, again, the, the combination of history and science, right? You can't... You, we never cure the mouse with fasting. Never, right? And, uh, and we cured lots of mice with lots of cancers with the combination of fasting and chemotherapy, fasting and other therapies, right? So it really seems to be that use technology... Because it can be sophisticated, and, but don't forget uh, the, the, the history 
because it has some features that are really evolved and, and some of the evolution is really about also getting rid of damaged cancer cells, right? Or pre-cancer cells, right? So that's probably why it works, but it doesn't work with the metastatic advanced cancer, uh, you know, alone, meaning. And uh, so cancer is one and uh, multiple sclerosis is another one we uh, already published on the uh, clinical trial initial as a preliminary trial and I think 48 patients uh, plus the mouse data, mouse uh, great results where we could uh, bring back uh, most of the mice uh, um, and uh, cure about 20% and make about 50% of them uh, go back to a nearly normal uh, state. So it looks very promising. And now uh, we're, uh, we've done the clinical trial, showed the uh, improved quality of life, uh, but now we're running a multi-center trial in Italy, um, you know, with uh, 10 different hospitals and uh, uh, interfering uh, treatment. Uh, we'll see. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a tough one you know, with these randomized uh, large studies. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but uh, we're optimistic. And then, you know, we've done diabetes type 1, diabetes type 2 in mice. Uh, some initial data from, from uh, humans in our trial with pre-diabetic patients worked very well. We pre pre-diabetic patients. Most of them came back to the, to the normal state after three cycles of the, of the fasting mimicking diet. Um, you know, and of course, uh, we are um, uh, we're now doing both mouse studies and, and human studies on Alzheimer's. I'm uh, in a really many different diseases. So, so it's, it's a panacea. It really is a panacea, <laughs> but it's an ancient system. So it, it makes sense for me that it would be because it's, you know, if you, if you have this occurring in bacteria and mice, it's been around a long time, this ability to protect in a state of fasting. And then from when the refeeding starts to actually rebuild and everything, um, so yeah, we, we're starting to think that um, that it was probably. Um, I mean, I, I like to thinking about my complex system uh, pillar. I like to think as you know, you take the car into the body shop into the mechanic uh, once a year, and we're. Start, I'm starting to think that that that's it. You know, that was the that's what fasting was. Fasting it's kind of like sleeping, right? You go to sleep, and it's not like you just go to sleep and it just happens and there's no purpose. There's a clear purpose for it, and and um, and I think when when we uh, you know and sleep had to be imposed because if it was not imposed physically, nobody would sleep. Uh, but fasting was probably imposed by the environment, so there's no need to to make people want to fast, you know. And 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 so um, and it was probably the moment where you get rid of damaged cells. It could be precancerous cell, it could be an autoimmune cell, it could be a damaged uh, neuron, um, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a damaged liver cell, uh, muscle cell. And, and so if, in fact, that was the moment where you get rid of damage and replace it with good, then it makes sense that you could apply it to so many different diseases uh, if you apply it correctly. If you misapply it, then, of course, it is so powerful. And this is what people are underestimating, right? For example, the 16-hour uh, um, uh, timer city feed that you refer to. People are now gaining, you know, uh, what there was a Greenspan, uh, 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 it said, irrational exuberance, right? <laughs> well, this, is, this is it, right? We saw it for calorie restriction. So irrational exuberance uh, makes people look at, oh, it's working now, great, you know, so I'm going to do this all the time. And what well, turns out that if you fast for 16 hours a day, you have a much higher chance of developing gallstones and needing your, your gallbladder removed to tell you one. If you fast for 16 hours a day, you're probably skipping breakfast. Most people that fast for 16 hours a day don't eat breakfast. And several studies are showing association between skipping breakfast and a shorter lifespan, right? Uh, so, so you have to be very careful and, uh, and, and say, well, 12 hours a day, 12-hour fasting period, uh, seems to be very positive. There is really no negative association with these gallstones, or that's a good way to go. It matches the centenarian pillar, the clinical studies, the epidemiological studies. There is really no negative data. When you get to 16 hours, you see a lot of negative data. Well, a good, uh, um, um, something good that I learned is, is first do no harm. This is what they teach you in, in 
year one in medical school. And uh, so start with saying, you know, start with something that clearly is, does not have any negative associations. And, um, and so this is true for 16 hours. This is true also for fasting. Uh, it's a word that doesn't mean anything. I mean, I, I, it really upsets me, uh, the people, the way people are using it, because fasting is equivalent to, say, eating. It doesn't mean anything. What does eating mean? Uh, it could be anything. Uh, and so, yeah, so people need to start understanding that it is powerful and needs to be respected it needs to be done with the rules, you know, the same rules that the FDA and other uh, uh, institutes uh, uh, have uh, uh, established. We need to have these kind of rules because otherwise uh, people are going to get hurt, you know, and they're going to get hurt from all kinds of fasting. Uh, this is why, you know, the fasting making diet is something that, you know, you test clinically, you do the safety studies on it, you do feasibility, you do the efficacy uh, you know, you really pay attention, you standardize, you always make it identical, and then you say, did anybody have any problems? Yes or no? What kind of problems did they have? You know? and, and then you move to say, okay, this seems to be safe for this type of person, but not all people. For example, the fasting, even the fasting-making diet, we don't allow people younger than, say, 18, 20, and older than 70 to do it, you know, and uh, so even that has got limitation, but uh, uh, but I think it's really a bad idea to do water-only fasting outside of a clinic. Lots of people are doing this. In, it's like it's no different than, than just going to the pharmacy, grabbing a bunch of drugs, going home and taking it. You know, just because, oh, my friend takes that drug, must be okay, right? I'll take it too. Uh, no, it doesn't work like that. You know? And uh, that, that's going to hurt a lot of people. That We're going to see that this improvisation uh, is going to do lots of damage. Yeah, yeah. It, people who do long-term fasts, I, I, I know several, um, they swear by it, but, but the truth is, actually, they don't look good. <laughs> I mean, they just don't look good. <laughs> you, I think well, long-term, you, you can see that that's just not going to go well. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, one, again, one pillar strategy, right? Remember what I was saying about the doctors that has a little practice and say, oh, you know, I've seen I've monitor patient with this and that, so this must be it. It doesn't work like that, you know? You really have to respect the process and the randomization process and the epidemiological studies and the sentinel. And, and then, you know, when you put it all together, only then you say, hmm, okay, I think, and I, and I use the word I think, not I know, but I think this is going to work, you know. Uh, now to go and say, I've seen a bunch of people that fasted for a long time and they swear by it. It's irrelevant, really, right? So it's, it's just uh, so people. I've seen I've seen a lot lots of people that drive 120 miles an hour, and they swear by it. You know, is that good? Is that a good practice? Should we all do it? You know, it, well, we know from insurance company statistics that you're gonna die like that, right? And uh, but yet you could bring 10 friends and say, I drive frequently 120 miles an hour. Ah, nothing's gonna happen to you. Or I smoke. Yeah, I'm fine. You know, or my grandmother smoked. And she's fine. Yeah, we hear it all the time. And it's just uh, this irrational uh, uh, thinking that, you know, just because you want to do something, um, it's, uh, it's, it's good for you and, and it's going to work. Right. So the fasting mimicking diet is exactly that. It mimics fasting. So you don't actually expect people to just live off water. It's a five-day program. I think you also have a seven-day one uh, variation as well, if I'm... Um, not for the not, autoimmune uh, disorder, right? Yeah. And um, that diet actually involves a, a specific set of, of nutritional components. Let's call them um, that, that you've made available through through the company Prolong. We'll, we'll put all the links to to you and your the relevant information in the podcast notes. But what I was interested in is now. Are those um, nutritional components simply to help compliance, to help people stay fasting and get into a ketogenic state after the end of that week? Or are some of those supplements very intentional because you actually think they're doing something to help the process as well? Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, they're not really supplements. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, they're components, yeah. Yeah, the, the idea is just that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a dietary program, right? And and the scope is to uh, nourish you, uh, prevent side effects, and make sure you get to the end of it 
and maximize the, the response, right? So yeah, so that's, that was designed uh, for that reason. We don't want people to feel hungry all the time. We don't want people to, to feel like, I don't want to do that ever again. Um, we don't want people to pass out. Um, and, um, you know, and we want people to have the, the maximum effect without either any risk or while really minimizing uh, any potential risk. And so, yeah, that's what the fasting weekend diet is. You know, we give on day one, say 1,100 calories. It's a lot, lots of food. Uh, it's not what you would want normally, and uh, but it's good. I, I I always say it's very. I mean, I like the fact that that it's a little bit hard as much as, as everything else, right? I mean, I like the fact that people always, especially in the United States, but all over the world, everybody keep we keep looking for a way to do absolutely nothing, right? You know, the cars and the escalator. And, and, and clearly, um, uh, you know, for example, I heard in Italy, they're trying to put back the, the mandatory military service, right? And, and why is that? Well, you know, everybody used to go and it was something hard, right? And, and people had to do it. And then they took it away. And then they realized that maybe when we were 18 years old, we were better off with the military service, you know, not military. It could be like volunteering for the, you know, driving an ambulance, so it could be a uh, civilian uh, or civil service. But, um, yeah, so fasting, uh, I think it, the fact that it's a little harder than you, you know, for five days, it's good. You know? The fact that it separates you from all the things that we feel like we got to eat all the time, that's good. You know? We don't want to make it too much like the food you eat every day because then it just gets rid of at least part of the, the purpose of, of really educating people you don't need to have 10 coffees a day every day you don't need to have steak a steak every day or, or whatever you know it's okay you know you'll survive eating things i mean it's a vegan diet right it's five days of a vegan diet and it, it's an education and we see a lot of people they say you know what i used to eat a steak a day and now maybe i eat uh, two steaks a week right after because I, I i did the vegan diet and and felt like this is not so bad. I can do this. You know, of course, you don't want to do that all, all year round, but certainly uh, they, uh, they appreciate that. They're not, they're not going to die because it's a vegan diet. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a dietary program. Every ingredient is there. Think, considering the connection with the genes, whether it's TOR, IGF-1, PKA. So every, for example, we know the sugars control PKA. I told you about the amino acids. Right? So everything, it looks... Like vegan, normal food, people relatively normal, but to us, it's really a, a complex uh, formulation uh, that has the job of tricking the system into uh, into responding as if it was just fasting with water on. Right, and this diet does move you into a state of fat burning ketogenesis at the end of this five day period. Now. The question that immediately comes to my mind when you say that it's the refeeding that actually is most important, that would in itself speak hugely against the ketogenic diet, which is a huge trend at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, a ketogenic diet, again, is a one-pillar uh, diet. And, uh, um, you know, and you're going to get that uh, the, the results uh, that, that you get from one-pillar strategies, Uh you know, you, you have to have a much more sophisticated system. Um, and, uh, you know, it can be my five pillars. It could be something similar, something equivalent. I don't think too many people all argue that epidemiology, clinical studies, and basic research focus on longevity um, and centenarian studies are important, right? So I think we all agree on that. That's four out of five pillars minimum that we have a sort of an agreement on. And why don't they use it? <laughs> well, if we all agree that those are all important, okay, from now on, do we agree that everybody should say, you want to do a ketogenic diet? Fine. Let me see the data on epidemiology. It's not good. Let me see the data on clinical trial. Okay, there's some good in there, you know, the randomized clinical trial, some good, some bad. Let me see the data on centenarians. None of them do a ketogenic diet. Um, you know, let me see the epidemiology. And the basic research, the mice do very poorly 
uh, and, a, and a, you know, and a certainly on a high protein diet. Now, on a ketogenic diet, if it's a low protein, high fat, they tend to live a little bit longer than normal, I have to say. So, yeah, if it's a low protein, uh, high fat. But, um, uh, but you know, it's going to place people in danger because it pushes you in a, into a, a situation that uh, it's got lots of unknowns, right? This is why I don't like it. This is why, for example, the, um, the FMD, the fasting making diet, hold on, um, you know, some people say, well, it doesn't have the, the level of ketones that you would get from water-only fast, right? Well, that's on purpose. Uh, why is that? Well, because, again, first do no harm, right? So I want people to get to the ketogenic mode, but I don't want to push them. Some people might do it 12 times a year. I don't want to push somebody for 12 times a year into this full high millimolar ketone bodies mode. Why? Because I don't know the consequence of that. Even in the history, people didn't do that, right? People didn't probably fast that many times a year, right? They're probably fasting periods. And so, so, you know, could it be good? Yes. Could it be better? Yes. Do I want to risk that? No. You know, even though, let's say that I, I may get an effect of eight out of 10 and I could get 10 out of 10, but now 10 out of 10, I'm, I'm moving into an uncertainty area that I don't understand, right? And nobody understands in the world. And so do I want to use people as guinea pigs? No. Uh, I'd rather give you an eight and say, okay, this is, is going to be safe. I mean, we'll all be shocked because, you know, it's pretty high carb. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a low calorie, uh, certain types of carb, the complex, the good carb, the very good carb, not just the good, the very good carb. Uh, and it's got low protein. It's got good fat. So it's really, per- really the perfect diet, if you will. But um, but it, it's not going to get your ketone bodies so high. And uh, and because you know we want to wait and, and watch. Once we have two or three million people, we probably have a version eventually that has a, that gets your ketone bodies higher. And then we'll see. You know, we'll see what did anybody get hurt from the the, the super high ketone bodies. If the answer is no, everybody's doing great, and then we've, we've done a million people, yeah, then maybe, uh, then maybe we could say, if you can handle it, uh, do, a, do a version that gets your ketone bodies high. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. But staying in ketosis would actually prevent this um, repair mechanism, Correct. Well, staying in ketosis is just going to begin uh, potentially some of the repair mechanisms uh, or it's going to begin the process, but you're never going to rebuild because it's nothing to rebuild, right? Right. You need to break it down to be able to rebuild it. And, and, uh, and the, keto, the high-calorie uh, ketogenic diet uh, uh, doesn't really break much uh, down, doesn't need to. Um, yeah, so then, then the coordinated rebuilding uh, is not going to be there. Right. So how often do you recommend that somebody um, undergoes the, the FMD? Presumably that has a lot to do with age and status of health. Yeah, I recommend, uh, um, you know, people, uh, if they're healthy or relatively healthy, um, now if they are obese and, and they say have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, they may have to do it once a month until they get to a better stage. Uh, if they're, you know, a 32 year old athlete that has got a pescatarian diet and does all the right things, uh, maybe twice a year. So let's say from twice a year to once a month. That uh, seems completely and utterly doable. Um, wonderful. Another question I had was um, when you talk about the, the percentage of results that you're getting, there is a section of population, be it in mice or humans, that are not responding. What do you think is the reason behind that? Um, well, I mean, you know, don't forget that we're using similar uh, diets for mice and humans, right? And, uh, and uh, we even have the fasting mimicking yeast diet. Uh, so, you know, we really focus on fundamental uh, responses. And almost everybody responds. And uh, now in some cases, you know, not everybody's going to respond the same. And that's true, and, but um, 
But I think almost everybody's going to respond, uh, you know, in, in positive ways. Um, and uh, again, uh, this is really about uh, fundamentals of life, right? Starving is something everybody was exposed to. Doesn't matter what genetic background, doesn't matter whether you're a mouse, a rat, a monkey, or a person, or a bacteria. And, um, and so that tells you that the starvation response was is evolved in all these different species, and they know how to deal with it very in a very sophisticated way. And uh, yeah, of course, your starting point, who you are genetically, etc., is going to determine. You know, so for example, sometimes we see people saying, "I did this once, uh, and 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 it didn't work. I did it twice, it didn't work. I did it a third time." And my cholesterol dropped like crazy, or my blood pressure all of a sudden went back to normal. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it, it may take uh, multiple times for somebody to uh, to respond. And the reason we really don't understand yet, you know, it could be that you have too much abdominal visceral fat to begin with. Um, it could be that um, you know your your brain is responding differently. Uh, to the starvation period, uh, it could be your microbiota, your your intestinal gut, the flora and bacteria is different. I mean, there's many many explanations for why somebody might respond differently from somebody else. Right. Oh, I see. Our time is slipping away, and I have a million more questions, but um, I'll, I'll stick in a couple more if I may. Um, the microbiome was exactly going to be that next question. So, what role does that actually play? Do you think because that can be very affected by not eating? Microbiome can change within hours of different foodstuffs. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. So we're doing that right now. We're going to publish it soon enough, and uh, yeah. So I will say within six months. Uh, our publication on that will be out. Oh, and, uh, waiting with bated breath. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So I always have three little questions that I ask my guests. Um, before I go into that, is there a final comment that, that you feel that you would like to make to make sure that people really understand um, your message? Well, I mean, you know, uh, the people hear about the, the products, et cetera, and they think there is a commercial operation. I mean, I, I, uh, I don't take a salary from the company, and all my shares will be assigned to Create Cures Foundation, a foundation that I started to uh, basically, um, you know, uh, come up with integrative solution for people with advanced diseases, right, whether you have cancer or, or multiple sclerosis, et cetera, et cetera. We felt that it's crazy that people have to go to the Internet, and so... Create Cures was started for that purpose, and hopefully if the company does well, Create Cures is going to have uh, lots of funds uh, to do all, all uh, kinds of clinical trials and also programs for, for people in that. We already started both in Italy and the United States to have, uh, you know, people that for free um, can uh, can respond to uh, to people with diseases and help them and work with their doctor. Uh, and so, yeah, so just just to understand that where, where all this uh, is going to uh, so it's just a, sort of like a circle. It all comes back to uh, um, the money, the lots of the money that they go into the products go, go back to the ability to help more people that have similar diseases. Yes, I'm sorry I forgot to mention that because it was. I think it's a very, very central point. It uh, it's certainly a, a criticism that's raised with a lot of people that they financially benefit. And I must even say that even Dr. Longo's book or Professor Longo's book is also the proceeds of that also go to your foundation, correct? So correct, really, right. really squeaky we, clean on that front. <laughs> yeah, 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 I didn't make a dime out of that, so I, uh, very, that's but, good. I mean, I think it's really, very uh, honorable, and, uh, and, and I think you'll garner, a certainly for me, a huge amount of respect for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my three little questions I ask everybody is, um, we talk a lot on, on London Hill about mind, body, and spirit medicine, that you can't really separate them. Nobody ever told the mind that the body was not connected. Um, so I like to embody that in the idea of health, happiness, and serenity. So how do you actually define health? What does that word mean for you? Well, um, I mean, I, I never uh, got into the psychology of it because I just, uh, I'm not really qualified to, uh, uh, to do it. Uh, but obviously mental health uh, is uh, as important as the physical one. 
Um, and uh, but you know, some of it I think is also addressed by um, what I was saying earlier. You know, the ability to uh, to uh, withstand uh, some difficult periods, and, and uh, that um, I think is part of the, the mental process of of uh, um, you know having been in tune with. Uh, with uh, the environment and the food and, and everything else, but yeah, absolutely, there is there is uh, it can be spiritual or, or, or psychological uh, issues which we haven't addressed, and uh, and uh, I leave it to others to, to do it. I mean, my job is really to make sure that people don't get cancer, and uh, they don't get Alzheimer, they don't get diabetes, and uh, and they stay as young as possible. You know, in the book I talk about youth span. It's really our focus. You know. Can I make everybody young until 70 and, again, healthy until 100, uh, physically healthy? Uh, the mental one is, uh, is complicated and I think uh, should be probably left to the people that, um, that uh, you know, know more than I about it. And, um, and I hope that, that there is an equivalent uh, uh, system, you know, like a five-pillar mental, <laughs> mental health system. You know, I would think that, you know, not I would think, I know that the same applies, right? I mean, that uh, you, you, you cannot have one pillar system to make people mentally healthy. Um, and so hopefully that, that's, that the same approach is taken. Very wise advice. And what about happiness? What does Walter do to keep himself happy? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that the first thing is uh, if you're healthy, uh, I see it with my father who's now 92, and I see that whenever, uh, and myself, is, uh, I'm very similar. Um, whenever I'm physically not healthy, I'm very unhappy. And when I'm physically healthy, uh, then lots of the things that bother me, uh, that, that would bother me if I was not feeling well, uh, don't bother me at all. So I think it really, again, if you're physically healthy um, and uh, you, you have the longevity diet and, and you have the and you exercise, I mean, I walk. I'm in Milan now. I walk uh, today. I walked uh, two hours. I walk to work and I walk back from work. I, I never take ele- elevators. I, I I try to do everything as much as possible the way it was done, you know, ten thousand years ago. And um, it's really important, right? I mean, you know, approaching everything like that. Um, you know, if you uh, go to the grocery stores and you have two big bags, or you have a, a ARD airport and have big bags. People think I'm crazy because I'll go up the stairs, you know, they'll say, well, what's wrong with you? And they don't understand that that's really our history. You know, I, I, we carry things all the time. And, uh, and, uh, and that really kept us strong physically, but also mentally strong. You know, you, you, um, you have to learn, you know, uh, how to deal with it. And, uh, and that I think helps you deal with, uh, you know, dealing with, with physical um, challenges, I think, helps you also mentally uh, being stronger, and, uh, and and we abandon that. I think it's probably also part of the uh, part of the contribution to this uh, high level of depression and mental disorders that that, and that life is now becoming, uh, you know, machine uh, mediated, right? So. Yeah. yeah, I just recently interviewed um, uh, Dr. Mike Merzenich, who's the uh, neuroplasticity expert and and he said exactly the same thing you know it's so important to engage in life and not just let it happen while you're sitting on the sofa um because you know that's the only way to keep your brain young and healthy and presumably if you feed it and fast it correctly then then it's uh really going to be a great ending so lastly Serenity. I always think that in this crazy world that we live in, we, we know a lot about the impacts of stress on disease and, uh, and negative effects of stress on, on mental health, too. Um, I love the idea that every one of us should take a little bit of time during the course of a day just to get quiet and turn the noise down. Some people have specific practices for that. Um, how do you find serenity? Do you have a specific practice? Is there something that allows you to just turn the noise down? Um, I don't, uh, uh, but I, I was lucky because I was trained in the U.S. Army for six years in the Army Reserve. And um, I think uh, I learned that, I mean, we used to have a system of, called hurry up and wait. 
And, uh, you know, really, uh, that taught me a lot. I mean, I'm very, I'm, I'm a very peaceful person. I mean, I, I hate war and all that, but, but certainly I, uh, that was an incredible experience for me. And, uh, and it, it, it taught me how to deal with stress, uh, uh, no matter, you know, so I guess it taught me how to deal with stress without having to get away from stress. You know, um, you, you just learn that, hey, it could be a lot worse. You know, you could be in a war zone right now. And, uh, and then you're like, eh, that's not so bad, you know? So I, I, I think I learned how to switch off this idea that I have, I'm in a bad situation, you know? And I'm thinking, no, this is not really bad at all. And yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's the training, the, the, the military training, uh, that, uh, I think somehow, of course, and, and, and it makes sense, right? Because they, if, if, if being in traffic stresses you out, uh, then the army is basically saying, what's going to happen to this person when they go to war? And <laughs> they're not going to be able to handle it, right? So you really have to have a much higher threshold of, uh, of uh, stress handling. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was a real flyover of all of your work. We, we certainly can't cover the depths of it in, in an hour. Perhaps you might come back, certainly when that microbiome data is out, and talk to me again, um, because oh, I'm yeah. really, really interested in finding out what, what that is. Um, I'd really like to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing. I think it's absolutely groundbreaking. It is, for me, upholds absolutely tenant of the scientific principle that, that you know, you, you look and you look and you look and you don't take just one pillar. I think that's absolutely marvelous. And I actually think that your work is really going to have a huge impact on, on human health. And thank you for it. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, dear listeners. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I know I say that every week, but that's because I have the privilege of having such wonderful guests as Professor Longo, and his work is really groundbreaking and quite extraordinary. Um, so I highly recommend that you purchase his book. Um, all of the details are in there. There's even a two-week recommended uh, diet plan with recipes to follow the longevity diet. And, of course, if you want to go ahead and follow the Prolon fasting mimicking diet, um, we'll put the links in the podcast notes so that you can access those. They are available from the UK as far as I know. And it's certainly something that you should definitely contact your uh, treating healthcare professional or a nutritionist if you have any medical problems, don't try and do this thing completely by yourself. Make sure that your doctor stays informed. So, my dear listeners, looking forward to having you here with the next great guest next week. And until then, please, please, please rate, review us on iTunes. Subscribe. Tell all your friends about us. And, of course, please pass on this information to anyone who you think it could benefit, because that's really what we're here for. So until next week, wishing you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity.